Community Church. Can you uh, can you hear me out there? Yeah. Hopefully you got your worship guides. If you don't have a worship guide, just make sure you raise your hand. Somebody to get to you. Want to make sure everybody's got one. And then you can follow us on YouVersion. Uh, our worship bulletin is inside there. You just put our zip code in or our church name to follow along with us. You can take notes right inside that. If you don't have that Bible app, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal Bible app. I'm going to be giving you a really cool announcement about YouVersion in a couple of weeks. Can't wait to share it with you on some things that Connect has done to partner with YouVersion and One Hope. But uh, until then, let's uh, get right into our series today. I want to um, say something to uh, kind of our church family. Um, our family has, uh, you know, been growing and a lot of great things happen in our midst. And sometimes in the middle of the good stuff, there's some tough times. How many know there's going to be some tough times, some trial? And so I just wanted to encourage some of you guys just real quick. This is just kind of bonus material right out of the gate. I was just sharing this this morning, and I felt like the Lord told me in worship just to share this with you uh, here in the church. You know, um, the Lord's been speaking to me for about a month, uh, just seeing that, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're in the end times. Whether you, whether you like that idea or not, I really think we are. I think times are, are uh, the, the trials are kind of all around us. But sometimes when you're, you're getting hit hard, it just means you're moving in the right direction. Can I have an amen out there? And so I just want to encourage you that those of you who are just kind of getting hit hard, uh, you know, don't shrink back. That's what the Lord's been telling me. Don't you dare shrink back. Don't you dare, don't you dare give up. You know, pray and never give up, Luke 18.1. You know, God was telling me, you know, to tell you and even myself, our hope is in God. And to have, we hold on this life so tightly. I, I, you know, I've been involved in uh, two funerals this weekend, this week, and uh and there's just a, there's a real preoccupation. A lot of the heaviness and the burden comes because we hold on to this life so tightly. And a great pastor said to me one time, wear life like a loose garment. You know, you just, just don't hold on to this life. To, don't get your tail up over the dashboard. Some, that's Louisiana talk for some of you who don't know Cajuns. I have a lot of Cajun friends. But we just get, we get all up tight and we get all wound up tight in this life. But really continually have an eternal focus. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4. And he talks about, you know, we're like, we're just jars of clay that are supposed to represent and demonstrate his power in our life. And he says things like this. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed. I don't know about you, but sometimes life's problems, I'm like, I'm perplexed. Like, I can't, you can't make some of this stuff up. It's so crazy. I couldn't even exaggerate some of the trials that people are having. I'm perplexed, but not in despair persecuted but not abandoned. Look at his attitude. Look at his disposition. Uh, I'll tell you why and how in just a minute. Um, struck down but not destroyed. I call that the weeble wobble thing. In other words, you remember the old commercial? Weebles wobble but they don't fall down. So if you get knocked down, what are you supposed to do? Get back up again. Proverbs tells us that a righteous man falls seven times and my father used to say, rises again. That's what he used to do. That's his favorite verse. That doesn't mean at the eighth time we're all done. It means you just get the perfecting number. It means you just keep getting back up again. So, you know, you turn to your neighbor and say, you're a weeble wobble. You might get knocked down, but you got to get back up again. <laughs> hey, turn to your second choice. So what's up, weeble wobble? You're a weeble wobble too. Get back up. Get back up. Don't fall down. Then he goes on in verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Say, I will not lose heart. 
Though outwardly, outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. How do we get renewed day by day? In our devotion with God, in worship. Can I tell you something? When you get into the presence of God, like Deej was talking about and Samantha was talking about, your big problems, they get small because they are contrasted against the backdrop of eternity and an awesome, powerful, mighty God. So it's so important to worship with, you know, through your trials. Worship, it's all through the Bible, by the way, worshiping through trials and all kinds of predicaments. That's a great word, predicaments. I just had to say that more than once. For, he says, our light and momentary troubles, our light and momentary, he calls these things that I just read you, hard-pressed on every side, persecuted, but not like abandoned, struck down, all these different things. He talks about, you know, he was, this, guy, this is a guy that was whipped three times you know, 39 lashes. This is a guy that was shipwrecked out there at sea, you know, abandoned. This guy was bit by a snake, just went, shuck it off. He said, these are light and momentary troubles. <laughs> this guy, is got, he had a strong eternal perspective. He had a strong, put his hope in God. This was a strong believer. He, light and momentary troubles, I call that like bugs on the windshield. This is what he was doing. When all those trials were coming at his windshield, he went, whoosh, whoosh. he just wiped them off. Turn to your neighbor, just, just wipe them off. Just, just wipe them off. But just bugs on the windshield. Light and momentary troubles. How did he do that? He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because you're pressing through, because you don't shrink back, because weebles wobble and get back up and don't fall down, you're achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs all the stuff that you're dealing with right now. Something good is going to happen. Something great is going to come out and through this. That's what he's saying. So we fix our eyes. How do you do it? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. That'll preach. I'll tell you what. That gets me pumped up. Anyway, that was just for free. And I shut my Bible, but I have another Bible verse I want to read you. Turn to John chapter 8, and we'll get into today's message. Say, I like that message. Okay, well, you're going to like this one too. By the way, if you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Derek, and I'm the lead pastor of Connect Community Church. <laughs> And I just do that stuff once in a while, just go off. So there you go. That's who I am. All right? We're going to talk about one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, John chapter 8. Um, I talk about this a lot in growth track in different ways in different times. And, uh, you know, this whole series has been uh, God of the Underdogs about, you know, when you feel like the odds are all against you, uh, God is for you. But sometimes we don't see how God is for us. And I want you to see today how God is for you in your circumstances, in your situations. In particular today, how God is for you when you feel ashamed or when you feel unworthy. This is one of those killers of giants in the faith is shame and unworthiness. The enemy tries to come in and knock us out at the core of our being, try to sidetrack us and sideline us. What's a wonderful thing is to be able to see people who struggled with feeling unworthy and ashamed be able to, to express their love for God openly and uh, publicly. It's a powerful thing, and I, I was just mindful of that with just looking at some people that I know in the body today um, and seeing how God has changed their life. But when, when, when the odds are against us, we, we typically, uh, you know, we, we get kind of burned down and bogged down and, and sidelined and sidetracked. And, and today we're going to talk about a, a woman that I, I, you know, we don't know her name. We don't know a lot of details about her, but she's been talked about many, many, many times through, uh, you know, churches and through scripture. But we're going to talk about the adulteress, the adulteress. 
And I'm going to read from John chapter 8, verse 1 and following. Don't be afraid. You're going, to be, you're going to like this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn, and he appeared again in the temple courts. He went to church where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. Notice that word caught. Caught in the act. Remember that. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Okay, so this is what they're trying to do right out of the gate is trap Jesus using the law against him. And they were using this question as a trap to have a bias for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, This is a famous line, one of the most famous lines. Many, many people have heard this line before. But if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, uh, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. I always think that's interesting. Until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Are you guys ready for this? There's all sorts of conjecture about this particular passage of Scripture in terms of, you know, uh, what was happening when Jesus wrote on the ground. And, um, you know, theologians and historians have uh, dialogued and conversed about this for a long, long time. And uh, I kind of like to think about those kind of things, too. Even recently in some of the messages that I was bringing up in this series, I was uh, throwing, you know, some conjecture uh, out there in terms of was, was it Jesus that stirred the waters at the pool of Bethesda? You know, was it him that walked alongside and did that when he was walking to Passover? Was, it, was, was Jesus doing and performing miracles before the first wedding, uh, the wedding that he went to, you know, that, that miracle where he turned water into wine? Had he done some more, you know, miracles before that as a young boy, you know, turning, you know, uh, putting groceries in the cabinets and healing, you know, Pfeiffer the dog or whatever? I, I always like to think about those kind of things. And I personally think and believe this is a very pronounced uh, you know, uh, and uh, obvious thing that people have talked about more so than the ones I just mentioned. But I personally believe that he wrote the names of the men uh, in the ground and put next to their names their sin. I personally believe that he got down on the ground and he wrote, James didn't pay his taxes. Oh, see that guy, uh, the older gentleman, yeah. Uh, John, uh, Susan, you know her? You know, and the Bible says one by one, starting with the oldest, because maybe the oldest thought they were so pompous and sure of themselves and had such Christian certainty to them, they walked away one by one. Why was it one by one? Why were they walking away like that? Because Jesus was writing things in the ground, and I really believe that, and their sins were beside their names, and these guys were standing there with rocks in their hands, ready to kind of execute the law, and they dropped their rocks as Jesus writes their names and their sins beside them. I think this is incredible. But you can't be certain, but let's look at this woman. And and she's our underdog of the day today. She's clearly a person with the odds stacked against her, right? I think think it's hard sometimes for us to grasp the full impact of this this scene, this situation. This is is a woman who is meeting the most famous religious leader of the day. I mean, he is famous. I mean, he is drawing thousands and thousands of crowds 
impromptu crowds, not like scheduled meetings, let's promote them, let's canvas the area, let's do a direct mail, let's social media the area. No, 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 no. He just, he's just showing up and then, boom, thousands of people would come to see him. You know, and, and there, wasn't, there wasn't a more famous or well-respected church leader in that time. He's encountering, whether she knew it or not, she, she's, she's, encountering, she's encountering deity. She's encountering God. And, and, and the way she meets him is she gets halted to church. It'd be like, here's God, he's speaking, and the woman just gets hauled right up into the front row of the temple of church, caught in the act. And let, let me help you even more with this picture. This is probably one of the, if you think about it, this is probably one of the last things she's ever going to do, ever going to happen to her, because her life is about to end. She's going to be killed. She's going to die. This is the, this is her, these are her last moments before she's going to be stoned, and she'll never see her husband. She'll never, we know she was married because the Bible says she committed adultery. She'll never see her husband. She'll never see her family. It's a good, we don't know for certain that she had children, but there's a good chance in that culture you had many children. She's not going to be able to explain to her husband, you know, what was going on or say she's sorry. She's not going to be able to talk to her kids. And the last thing they're going to remember, the last thing the husband's going to remember is this. And it was public and it was in front of everybody. And her shame is going to bring shame to a generation after her. This is a big deal. What's going on here? She's going to die and she's going to lose everything. She just think about how shameful and how unworthy she must have felt. Have you ever felt ashamed about something before? I know I have. I know I have. Shame is so manipulative. It's so powerfully demeaning. It just, it puts us in a box. It's very hard. It throws away the key. And what keeps us as underdogs and keeps many down in this life, and this is our excuse of the day, is this, and this is in your notes, I believe, is I'm not worthy. This is, this is the excuse that keeps us from overcoming the odds that are stacked against us in our life. The, the circumstances, the whatever it is, the relational dynamics, the reason we can't succeed in relationships. I was just reading an excerpt. I can't even remember where I, where I got it, but this, there's this famous actress. Her name's Demi Moore. Some of you guys know who Demi Moore is. She's just a beautiful woman. She's, I don't know, she's, she's uh, in her early 50s probably. And she was basically saying, I'm, um, she had a failed relationship again, and she was basically saying something like, I am, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I, I am so ashamed of some things that have gone on in my past, I can't be loved. I'm unlovable. That's what she said. So all the outside, everything's great, but in the inside, she's a mess. She's broken. She's broken. There's something inside there where she feels unworthy. I'm, she's, in fact, that's the word she used. I'm unworthy. I'm, I don't have the worth. For somebody to want to love me, the kind of thing she was saying. This is what some people feel like sometimes. Somehow the enemy, somehow sometimes it's religion, our own interpretations uh, keep us from feeling the acceptance that God has for us or wants for us, and it keeps us down. But in spite of these circumstances, and there could be many that we could dialogue about today, that, that, and, and the ones that opposed her specifically, in this encounter that she has with Jesus, her whole life is suddenly changed in a moment. And the answer, you know, are, are the reasons we need to unpack today and the answers we're going to talk about. So here's our big idea. Here's it. Here's it is, and we'll unpack it. Number one, big idea is your worth is not dependent on your works. Your worth is not dependent on your works. But how do we overcome this excuse? How do, we, how do we help others overcome this excuse? As a church, we're supposed to help other people overcome feeling unworthy, feeling the, uh, the root maybe of shame. How do we do that? Well, we got to learn from the adulterous story three things. Number one, this is, I love this particular point. So we could do a whole message on this, and that is Jesus is not condemning. 
Jesus is not condemning. How do we overcome this feeling of unworthiness, the shame? We have to have a no condemnation motto. In John 8, 9, it says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. The first message that Jesus brought, and by the way, the first message that the church of Jesus Christ should bring to those people who have fallen from grace, those people who are separated from God, disconnected, is no condemnation. The first message we should bring to people is acceptance. Can I have an amen, a better amen out there? Like, there's such a preoccupation with, like, clean them, fix them. That's wrong. That's not our first message because it, it wasn't Jesus and it shouldn't be ours. For some reason, many people think that God wanted to condemn us, and he is not condemning. People might be. The church might have been in the past, but Jesus is not. The church actually, according to Acts chapter 22, I won't do this message today, but you can look at it for yourself, the story of the road to, uh, uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, he has an encounter with God. God speaks to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, Jesus? I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. Basically, Jesus is saying Paul was persecuting the church. Jesus was saying the church and me, we're the same. So when you persecute the church, you persecute me. Jesus is the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of this church, by the way. And so we're, the church is supposed to have the same personality of Jesus. And so if Jesus was not condemning, then the church can't be condemning, right? So, but we get so surprised when people sin. We get so, so the church, oh, there's sinners here. Are you kidding me? I heard this old quote, hunters hunt, golfers golf, and sinners sin. One time I said this one time to a lady, I said, hunters hunt, golfers, she said, lie. <laughs> well, anyway, sinners sin, okay? Jesus is not condemning because he's not surprised when people sin. It's amazing to me as we grow in, in our faith, supposedly, that how surprised we are when sinners sin. They're just being consistent with their nature. You certainly heard the story of the, you know, of the frog and uh, the scorpion, haven't you? No, I have no idea what he's talking about. Anybody ever heard that story before? Okay, good. You know, the frog wanted to ride across the pond. The scorpion said, sure, jump on. The frog says, I can't do that because you'll sting me. The scorpion says, why, why would I do that? Because if I sting you, then I'll die. The frog says, okay, get on my back. The scorpion jumps on his back. Crossing the lake, pond halfway, all of a sudden the scorpion hauls back, stings the frog. The frog's gasping for air. They're both going down. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? The scorpion says, I can't help it. It's my nature. It's my nature. See, when we don't know Christ, when we haven't received, we're not a new creation. We haven't received our new identity in Christ. We don't have a new nature. We're just being consistent with our nature. Why are we so surprised? Jesus was not surprised. Sin doesn't shock Jesus, and it shouldn't shock us. I remember a time when I went to the Dominican Republic, and I was driving over there, um, and I, I was in the, I was in the I was there not too long before I realized that nobody in the Dominican Republic drives in between the lines. Do <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Like, now, they don't have like the five-lane highways and stuff like that, but you know, they might have two lanes occasionally. <laughs> but I can remember coming to a stoplight, two lanes, and you could have two cars and 17 mopeds <laughs> in the two lanes. 
Has anybody been there? Know what I'm talking about? You know, it's like it's insane. And and I can remember talking to the guy who was in the car with me. He was a you know kind of indigenous leader to the area. And I said, there must be a ton of car wrecks here, like a ton. He's like, no, actually, there's not that many. In fact, the statistics say there's more car wrecks in your country than there are in ours. I said, really? He said, yeah. You, 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 I was stunned. I realized, I realized, you know, as we were dialoguing that, that in these countries, other people expect that you will come into their lane in between your lines. But in America, we are deeply offended when somebody even hedges towards our lines. Don't you even come over to my line. Oh, don't you. Oh, don't you. We get all bent out of shape because people are coming here. They cross over our lines. Man, we're going to show them some lines. We start, we, we forget that we're Christians at that point. We repent later. This is, this is why Jesus wasn't ever shocked by sin because he didn't expect sinners to stay in the lines. I need to camp on this because we just, we don't understand it sometimes. That's why he wasn't condemning. He didn't have a holier-than-thou attitude. That phrase, we know that phrase, holier-than-thou, holier-than-thou. The only person on the planet, in the universe, that could have been holier-than-thou was Jesus. He was holier-than-thou. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's holier-than-you. And you, too, on the other side. He's the only one that can do that legitimately. I love this verse right after the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, plaster in every football game, is verse 17. It says this, for God, verse 16 says, for God so loved, and then verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He did, that's not why he sent him. He didn't send him, go down there and just condemn everybody to death. No, that's not what he did. You know why? Because in verse 18, it says they were condemned already. I came down there to release them from condemnation. You were condemned already. Verse 18 says this. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. But then Romans 8 says, there is therefore now. There is therefore now, since Jesus came, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There used to be these shirts um, that moms used to wear, and it used to say something to the effect that, uh, um, what part of no do you not understand? <laughs> Any mom ever, ever, you know what I'm talking about? Like, what part of no? Mom, 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 can I, can I, can I? No! You know what I mean? So they start wearing T-shirts for that because the kids keep coming with questions. Huh, here's a T-shirt. Read this. I don't know how to read, mom. Who cares? <laughs> Get your phonics out. Do it. We, we, we miss, <laughs> there's no, what part of no do we not understand? There's no condemnation. The church should have that. We should be promoting that, pushing that, publicizing that. We use no along the wrong way a lot. It's like my, when I, my kids used to ask my, my, my father for money. They call him Bampa. Bampa, you got any money? He says, no, I don't have any money. You don't, I have no, he said, I have no money. Uh, they're all thinking, Bampa, you're loaded. You, no doesn't mean no. You know, it's like, it's like asking oh, my wife. She'll come out and she'll say, honey, you ready to go? Yeah, you ready to go? She goes, I have nothing to wear. I have, I have nothing to wear. No clothes. No clothes. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to go naked? What are we, we going to do? I don't know what to tell you. 
I have nothing, nothing. No means no. Okay, that's not what I'm not talking about, that kind of no. All right? A lot of times we're, con- we're, con- we're condemning people and we're comparing ourselves to them, you know? It happens in church all the time. I see it. You know, if somebody walks in, you're like, hmm, 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 hmm. Look at that handbag. Woo. wonder where she got that. That, that wasn't on sale. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then the person with the handbag is like, stop judging me. You judge me. I don't judge you. You know, and then nobody's even talking, and it's all happening. It's killing worship. The presence of God is lifted. You know, oh my gosh. See, comparison kills relationship. Comparison will lead you to be condemning or to condemnation. One of two sides. Comparison will lead us to be condemning of other people or feel condemnation from other people. That's what it does. Comparison kills. Compare yourself to God and you'll see everything different. If I compare myself to somebody else, you can have one of two extremes. You're going to feel, pardon my frankness, like crap. You're going to feel terrible about yourself or you're going to feel like, I'm awesome. Me, me, me. But either, both sides are wrong because you're comparing yourself to the wrong side. You don't compare yourself this way. You compare yourself this way. And then when you realize, you know, against the perfection holiness, the only one who's holier than thou, perfect, majestic, awesome God. I fall short, but yet you love me and accept me. How can I not be that way towards other people? We get it all wrong because our focus is on the wrong things. Like I was saying this morning, we've got to focus on eternity and on eternal things and on eternal God, and we'll see everything differently. Can I get an amen out there? Recently, I was reading a, a paraphrase of the Bible the message, and I saw something different in the scriptures when I was reading from the book of Romans, and there, there was this verse in Romans that says, God has not declared, he's declared us not guilty. God has declared us not guilty. And my response when I was reading my, the paraphrase, I was like, thank you, God, for declaring me not guilty. And this is what happened. This is honest truth. In my head, this went off, but you and I both know the truth. You, you and I know, both know the truth. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And in that moment, I felt like this change in, in the dynamic tw- between God and I, I felt like he was offended. I felt like he kind of got fired up. What, do, what are you saying? What are you saying, Derek? Are you calling me a liar? Because I don't lie. I don't lie. I don't tell somebody they're not guilty if they're not guilty. I've declared you not guilty. I can't tell you that if it's not true. I'll tell you what's true, son, is I took all of your sin, son, and I put it on my son. And, and, he, and I said, you know, he's guilty. And he is condemned. And he was executed for that sin and for that guilt. That's how and why now I can do it. That's, why, that's how and why I can overcome. Because somebody else took that guilt and that shame upon themselves and removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. And so you need to, you need to reply to God, thank you, God, for not declaring me guilty, I agree with you. <laughs> I fall into agreement with you. In fact, why don't you just say that? Say, thank you, God, for not declaring me guilty. Declaring your son guilty on my behalf. I just think we need to hear this sometimes to get things right because the underdog in all of us wants to stay guilty and stay down. And, and this woman found out that day that, that, no, that Christ was not condemning her. 
And we shouldn't either. Number two, Jesus is not compromising. This is so important. The first message is one of acceptance. That's the first message, uh, not con condemnation. But the very next thing is about accountability. First message is acceptance. The second message is accountability. First message is no condemnation. The second message is no compromising. The order is so important, Christians that are listening. The order is so important. You can have both quality and quantity. John 8, verse 11 says, go now, Jesus says this, go now and leave your life of sin. Is anybody condemning you? No, neither do I. I, I accept you. Now stop it. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. That's not good. I love this verse. He was not con condemning, and yet he was not compromising at the same time. I wish I could impart this somehow, not even, I wish it could be caught not just taught. I believe it is in Jesus' name. I shouldn't even speak like that. I believe you are catching it. Amen? Amen. For most, we, we, we don't want to get condemned. Most people, this is what happens, most, not, not so much this church because we're growing in Jesus' name, not all churches, but, I think there, but there is a general predisposition that we don't want to be condemning and so we compromise. All right? Many times Christians compromise and they call it being relevant. People say things like this to me. They say, I actually wrote this quote down. Somebody said to me not too long ago, Pastor, you know, our generation is different than past generations, and we don't have the same beliefs and the same ideas about morality. We have to be more accepting. We have to be more tolerant. And I'm going to be really honest in my response to this guy. I said, hogwash. I had enough equity with a person to be able to do that. I'm not recommending that. I, but I basically said, that's just ridiculous. I think, I think the message is sacred. The, the methods have to change. Our approach has to change. We have to, we have, to have truth and grace coexisting, co-mingling, working together. But one comes first, then the other comes right on behind it. Amen. You have to first be non-condemning, and then you can be non-compromising. Jesus did it. The most relevant person, by the way, who ever lived, in my opinion, Matthew chapter 11, verse 19 says this. Look at this. I think this is in your notes. Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Look what he was doing. He's hanging out, partying with people. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. This was their the religious response to that behavior as he was relating and connecting with the people. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here he's called a friend of sinners. Here we see him not being condemning. That's the message that a lot of the church likes. Don't be condemning, so let's just hang out. Let's just hang out with him and hang out with him. But look at the contrast verse. Hebrews 7.26 says this. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Here we see him separate from sinners. Here we see him not compromising. He was both connected, not condemning to sinners, and he was both separate and non-compromising with sinners at the same time. Here's the, this is in your notes. We cannot be condemning and not be compromising at the same time. When you compromise, you diminish, reduce, eventually will eliminate your influence on people. We are called to be influencers. That's what leadership is, by the way, is influence. But it's diminished when you compromise. And sinners, they didn't, Jesus didn't hang out with sinners, by the way. This is, we get it all wrong. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners. You're saying, what are you talking about? Sinners hung out with Jesus. Amen. They wanted to be around him. They were drawn to him. See, a lot of times we're trying to, I want to be, uh, we have all these things. I want to be in the world, but not of it. Well, that's great. You should. But, 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 but you're, you need to be the stronger influence on the world, and the world is on you. Yeah. 
You go into the world to change the world. The world should look at you and say, I want to be like that. Instead of we as Christians going to the world and say, we got to be like the world so that we can connect the world to God. No! We lead the pack. We lead the pack. I see our world so messed up at this point. We travel to these two extremes. In Christianity, you know, we have, I call it tolerance versus terrorism. Say, what are you talking about? Well, we go to this tolerance side where we, uh, you know, because we cannot see how not to condemn and how not to compromise, we go to the extreme tolerance in our beliefs. Our beliefs just go bottled up, pushed down, um, watered down, um, sometimes in some cases just eliminated because a belief that's not applied is not really a belief. Amen. Right? So we just, you know, we just put it all down. Or we go to the other side, we're like true terrorists, we come out with pickets, you know, you know, picketing people and, and posters and slamming truth in your face and, you know, here's what the Bible says. You know what I mean? You're going to hell in a handbag. Truth terrorists, usually these two extremes. We use truth to destroy, not to save. And truth is like a knife. I always think of a song, Brian Adams cuts like a knife. I won't sing it right now. But truth is like a knife. It either can save somebody's life, surgically remove something that's problematic, cut through something that needs to be, you know, severed, but then, then put back together again, or it can bludgeon and destroy. A scripture many pastors won't read in the church today when we talk about subjects like this. I was reading this recently, uh, Malachi 2.16. Listen to this. This is, this is uh, you'll, it'll have relevance in a minute. It says, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Uh, for... This word for is like a synonym for, for the word because. So you could say, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce because it covers one's garment with violence. This is why people don't want to read this. You may not realize this, but this verse does not say God hates people, divorced people. It doesn't say God hates divorced people. People have taught this, by the way, in churches. This is why many shy away from the verse. Pastors don't want to talk about it. Unfortunately, about half our generation has experienced divorce. What God is trying to say is God hates divorce because it hurts people. That's what that verse is saying. He's not saying I hate divorce people. He's saying I hate divorce because it hurts people. They'll be, their garments will be covered in violence. Everything around them, it's just harder. It hurts more. That's what I'm trying to save them from. It's a violent, horrible situation that affects you, your family, and your friends. So just remember this. God doesn't hate divorced people. He loves people. It's like, God's, it's, like, it's like if God said, God hates car wrecks. So what are you talking about? What does it have to do with anything? Why does he hate car wrecks? Because, silly, car wrecks hurt people. Are you guys tracking with this? Is this too difficult? I don't think it's too difficult, right? So I'm trying to demonstrate that when you trip, when you fall, when you make a mistake, or even when you willingly walk into sin, even that, even when you're caught in sin, he will not condemn you, but he will also not compromise. I was praying for my, um, my baby girl, my middle daughter, Madison. She's not here this morning, so I won't embarrass her in the first service, maybe in the second. <clears throat> She's getting her license. I was praying for her. She's getting her license next month. So uh, pray for me. <laughs> and I'll be praying for you. <laughs> but anyway, I was, that's not what I was... Anyway, I was praying about her future. In all seriousness, I was praying about her future. Because she's, she's such a pure and innocent child. Just, just a beautiful, beautiful soul. Beautiful child. And I was telling God, 
you know, her, her, she's coming to that age. She's got more freedom. You know, can you go everywhere? Woo! You know, the world's her oyster. And I'm just saying, God, God, you know, her innocence is so important to me. How do I protect it? What do I do? How do I, how do I just keep that in check, you know what I mean, without, you know, being, you know, controlling? And, and I imagine myself having this conversation. I was role-playing with God, and I was telling God, you know, uh, you know, maybe I say this, you know, I was, I was just sitting down and I was imagining talking to Madison and just saying, you know, my greatest concern, Madison, is that you won't believe me in how horrible sin is, how horrible it is. It's, it's so bad. And, and, and I don't want you to get curious about it, about sin. I want you to, I, my greatest concern is that you won't believe me. I, I've, I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I live that life, and I don't want you to live that life. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. And I was like, God, you know, help me. How do I? And I just prayed. I just prayed. And God said to me, you know how you feel about her? I said, yeah, I feel I love her. I just, she's so important to me. He says, that's how I feel about everyone. That's how I feel about everyone. I just don't think they'll believe. Sometimes I feel, I feel like they just don't believe me. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying what I'm saying because I'm trying to control them, restrict them. I'm trying to protect them. I'm trying to save them. That's why I don't compromise. Years ago, I was teaching a Bible study, and there was this guy, I'll call him a pre-believer, because that's a great way to describe it. He was just on his journey, searching, seeking, kind of had a little new-agey background, and and he loved the Bible study. He loved what was, 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 what was being talked about. He was all fired up, and and I talk about something and say, that's great, that's great. I mean, he was the most animated guy in the group. Everybody else has been there. It's Chris for like 20 years. It's like, that's yeah, awesome, you know, kumbaya. This guy's like, woo, sitting on the edge of his seat, you know, and he was loving it. And uh, he basically came out at the end. He's like, you know what we ought to do? What we ought to do? We ought to uh, study all religions and take what's best from each one of them and add this to the group. And so, listen now. So I said, okay. I said, okay, okay. I said, buddy. That's a great idea. This is what I said. That's a great idea. Now listen, listen all the way through. That's a great idea. Now the truth is, for, from his perspective, that's a great idea. From a perspective of a believer, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you guys tracking with me? So I, so I said, that's a good idea. Because for someone who doesn't know the Lord, again, that's a good idea. It's not a good idea if we said that. So I said, listen, religion, buddy, listen to this. Religion is, is supposed to be based on the Bible. But the way religion becomes religious is because man comes alongside and adds all his opinions to it and piles that up on top of it. And so if we simply decide to study the, 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 the Bible and then add our opinions to it, we're going to get in trouble. But if, we simp- but if we decide to just study the Bible, just without all man's opinion to it, we're going to really get somewhere. What do you think about that? He says, that's a great idea. <laughs> now, what if I had come right out and said, That is the stupidest idea I ever heard. That would have been condemning. But I was able to be not condemning and not compromising at the same time. Prayed for a woman um, recently. She was kind of locked into some kind of new agey stuff about, you know, praying for for people to get healed and stuff like that. And she was exposed to some occult stuff. You know, and at first, I'll be honest with you, my reflex was like, whoa, 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 hang on one second here. But the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and just said, you know, just... Work with her, work with her, you know, talk to her, see where she's at. You know what? She had never, I'll speed it up and just say 
that God had sent her to this church so she could be rewired and recalibrated to realize that there's a genuine desire in her to see people healed. But she had been exposed in church environments to the wrong stuff, got into some new age stuff because that's the only alternative to express this interest. And so she comes in the church. God somehow miraculously brings her here. What if I came with a condemning message and rebuked her and sent her on her way? Instead, I just said, hey, you know what? And I didn't condemn her, and I was able to kind of turn the conversation to say, why don't you just kind of get into a small group? We, we teach about that stuff. I want to get you some exposure, you know, to how we minister in healing people here in this church. And she was totally open to it. See, we, we, our first message is not condemning. Our second message, we don't have to compromise. And lastly, Jesus is compassionate. John 8, 3 says, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Matthew 9, 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had, I want you to see the nature of Jesus. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sinners sin. Sinners, sinners have problems. Please understand that this woman was, that Jesus got and was talking to was caught in the act. The only emotion present in her, listen to this, the only emotion present in her worst moment was love or was compassion. What an incredible response. He wasn't angry at her. He couldn't wait to point out her flaws and mistakes and to tell her I told you so's. He was filled with compassion. He was trying to save her. They were trying to trick him, and he wasn't even preoccupied with defending himself. He was trying to defend her. Let's zero in on this idea she was caught. If you're, in, if you're here today, and you're in sin, that's what, that's, that's the church, and you're in sin, in sin. You know, right now. In other words, you're doing some things that you know are wrong. You do some things that are, you shouldn't be doing. If you're here, maybe you're listening to this online, you know, because sometimes people are in sin, they don't come to church. That's the last thing, the last place they want to be is in church. But you know you're doing some things you shouldn't be doing. I heard a pastor say to me one time, you know, it's, it's not true repentance if you get caught and then repent. But if you repent before you get caught, then that's repentance. And I remember hearing this, I'm thinking, that's just not true. That's just not true. I know people who have confessed their sin and repented and then went ahead and still did what they shouldn't do right after that. It's not about that. It's not about the, the order necessarily. I, I remember just, just being frustrated with that. I know people who, you know, have done all kinds of things in, in uh, you know, the right way, quote, unquote, and then changed their mind right after. The point is not whether you get caught. The point is whether you change your mind and your direction. Metanoia is the Greek word for kind of repentance. You do a 180 and not a 360. And this woman got caught in the act of adultery, and I personally believe her life was changed forever after that because she experienced a non-condemning Jesus, because she experienced a non-compromising Jesus, and because she experienced a compassionate Jesus. And Jesus in the church ought to be the same. I talked to a guy years ago who came to this church, and he said, Pastor, I'd like to get together with you and have a meeting with you. And I said, sure. And so we had this one-to-one, -one and he said, I have to talk to you. I've, I've been a Christian now for a few years. But um, there's some things in my past that are haunting me, and some, some, it makes me feel unworthy and ashamed. And, 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 and honestly, I'm ashamed to say this, but years ago I committed adultery. And, and since I've been back following the Lord, or since I've been following the Lord, I feel like I need to come clean with my wife. And uh, we talked about it a lot. And there's a lot of circumstances I can't go into today. But he decided he was going to come clean with her and confess it because he felt like it was a, a wedge in their relationship. And I prayed for him and just kind of helped walk through the process. And it was about a week later, uh, he came back. And um, he was a big boy, big burly guy. 
And um, he said, Pastor, uh, I got to talk to you. And he starts crying right away. He says, I, I, I talked to her. And I, and I shared with her, you know, what I had done. And um, you're not going to believe her response. I said, what, what, what? He said, she said to her husband, she said, I'm so sorry that you had to carry this all by yourself for all those years. I'm so sorry that it took this long and you had to carry this this long and you had to do this all by yourself for all those years. And as soon as he said that, I mean, I was just, I just lost it myself. I thought only, I know many of you just probably could never do something like that, but, but only Jesus could do that for someone. Only Jesus could do that. That she could respond to her husband without condemnation. That kind of a forgiving response. And, and I say that, and I don't want to go to all the details of the story necessarily beyond that, but I know that Jesus feels the same way about you and your sin and your mistakes and your shame and your unworthiness. And I think what Jesus is saying to you, and I think I know what he says to me and what he said to me before many times is, I'm so sorry, Derek, that you've carried that all by yourself all this time because I already carried that for you. A long time ago. Would you stand on your feet? Let me pray for you. With every head bowed, every eye closed, and just honoring the person to your right, to your left, in front, behind, please just give God a moment to speak to you. What would happen? What would happen if you met a God? today that was not condemning. He won't compromise, though. There's some things that are out of order. There's some things that are not right, and you know it. But what would happen if you met a God that loved you anyway, that wants to come in right into your mess, that stands at the door and knocks, and he stands at the door and knocks in your heart, the temple of God, and he says, I, I want to come in. Oh, no, 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 God, you can't come in right now because it's all a mess. It's all a mess. He says, I know, I know, I know, I know. I love you anyway. In fact, I'll... I'll I want to come in and help you clean your house. You don't have to serve me. I want to serve you. I want to help you. Will you let me in? What if you could meet a God that was like that, that comes into your mess? What if you met a God that in your worst moment, you could throw your most shameful thing at the feet of Jesus right now, and he didn't judge you. He didn't try to defend himself or, or, or point out all the things that you've done wrong, but instead he says, is anybody judging you? I, I don't. What if you met a God like that? What if you met a God that said, I'll help you through your situation? What if you met a God that's so compassionate and so loving that he'll walk through that whole thing with you? If you're here today and you've never met a guy like that, his name is Jesus. He wants to meet you today. But he waits for you to come to him. And if you're there and you know it, God's knocking on the door of your heart and you want to meet that Jesus. You want to come to know him personally and it's never really happened before. Between me, you and God, I want to embarrass you. I won't call you out of your seat, but I just want to give you that opportunity to, to come to Christ. Would you raise your hand and say, that's me, Pastor. That's me. I can't go another Sunday without that. Good night. Good night. Don't be bold. The enemy's bold. He wants to take your life. He wants to take your soul. He wants you to be eternally separated from him. God bless you all over the room. God bless you. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Church, there's many of you here in this room that need to a refresh in your walk with God. You've been walking and you've been leading in condemnation. You've been compromising and you've been either a, 
a terrorist of truth or, a, or tolerance, overly tolerant. And God wants to show you how to put things in order. And you need to make things right and put things in order. If you know that God's been speaking to you through this message and you need to kind of reorder some things and fix some things in your influence of other people, would you raise your hand? Humbly just say, that's me. I need to get better at that. I need some improvement in that area. God bless you. All of the room. God, help them. Help them where they are. Help them to catch the word. Help them to, 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 to release it the right way in Jesus' name. But for those of you in that first group that prayed, that raised your hand, I want to pray for you. And those of you that already know Christ, would you pray this with me? Say, Jesus, come into my heart. I willingly invite you into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I need you. Thank you for not condemning me. But I was condemned already. And I recognize that I need a God who can change me from the inside out. And I choose this day to follow you, to not live with compromise. Show me how to live a godly life in Jesus' name. And I pray, Father, that the compassion of Jesus Christ be all around them, Lord, as they connect in community and relationships with other people in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap? Come on, somebody.